0: Man, that may be the, the hardest-hitting set of words that communicates gospel truth to me. When I was sinking down, I recall the last time we sang that song, I said almost the very same thing following it. But if you're not, if you're not gripped or arrested by the gospel today, Man, I just, I don't know what you're doing here. Maybe you're hoping that today will be the day you're gripped by the gospel. Maybe some of you for the first time. We're going into a text that not only teaches us a bit about what Jesus came to do, but also what he expects from his followers. And as I communicated to you two weeks ago, We're beginning a series, it's probably going to be concluded on Easter, but we're going into a series entitled Reset. And we want to talk these next six weeks about discipleship essentials in the community of Christ. Some of you know a lot of my studying, a lot of my writing has been devoted to this very thing and so I rejoice at being able to preach on this topic. I firmly believe, and I hope I say it more and more and believe it more and more until the day I die, that God has intended for disciples to be made and matured within the local church. So today we're going to begin with the disciples' commitment. The disciples' commitment. Oftentimes as believers, we are quick to forget what we signed up for, if you will, Being a follower of Jesus, we forget what what exactly we were called to when we said, yes, I want to be a Christ follower. We get in, so to speak, and then we get comfortable, we get complacent. And so, these next six weeks, I just want to hit reset. The past year has been chaotic. Let's hit reset together. Let's remember what we need to do together for one another over these next six weeks. And what I want to focus on primarily over these next six weeks is not you and your relationship to Jesus, but you and your influence on one another's relationship to Jesus. I want to combat the constant drift for our Christian lives to focus on ourselves. So instead, let's direct our growth outward to one another. So, my hope is to strengthen our partnership in the gospel by doing this. And I want to remind you the gospel, the gospel uh, proper Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. Now, maybe a, a more full orbed gospel God's salvation of fallen human beings through the work of Jesus, namely his death, burial, and resurrection. We can't get away from this truth, all right? Your transformation as a disciple of Jesus, your looking more like Jesus is dependent upon the gospel truth. And if you abandon the thought of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, if you abandon that as no longer your sort of bread and butter of the faith, then you will be on a trajectory not of Christ likeness, but of religiosity or something else. The gospel is ultimately the transformative message to which we hold. We preach the gospel. We sing the gospel. We pray the gospel. We share the gospel, even with one another. Do you realize I love the idea of using gospel as a verb in all the one another's, and we're going to get to this in the next couple of weeks, in all the one another's, do you realize that you are sort of gospeling one another? reminding each other of the truth that Jesus laid down his life to make you like him these are some of the things that i want to focus on today and in the coming weeks and i want to invite you as we have started to luke 9 luke 957 through 62 A familiar text, no doubt, to those of you who have been around the church for any length of time. Hear the word of the Lord, verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, being Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. Father, once again, we ask your blessings on us today that we may understand by the help of the Spirit and be eternally transformed by this text this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amy, would you shut that door for me? Thank you. I can hear all my S's coming through the hallway from the fellowship hall. The Disciples' Commitment. The Disciples' Commitment. That's the title of the sermon today. And I want to remind you, uh, I'm not remind you, I want to tell you, and I'll be reminding you the next several weeks. We're inserting a, a special resource that we're going to have available indefinitely. In your bulletin you'll see uh, a sheet that's folded. The inside has nothing on it. That's for you if you want to make notes or draw pictures. I know some people like to draw pictures while they're listening and maybe it's helpful. Um, one side you got sermon notes and the other side is a series of questions for you to utilize especially in your home so uh, at dinner tonight or at lunch today you can use your time eating to go over the questions with uh, your family, your children Uh, if you have uh, somebody you're going to be eating a meal with over the next week I would encourage you to utilize this for the benefit of one another And again, we're going to make this available every week. It's going to be the same sheet every week. I want to encourage you to utilize that in your home and in your discipling relationships. All right, so the disciples' commitment. The cost of following Jesus should not be a new concept for you, even if it may be a foreign concept. You... You may recall some of the passages of scripture, like we're reading here. It's probably familiar, but you know where it says, take up your cross. Earlier, Derek read a little bit about that. Uh, you recall Jesus saying, the first shall be last. Uh, you know the living sacrifice, Romans 12, the idea of Galatians uh, 3, that we are crucified with Christ. So the self is really, really uh, takes a back seat. Really, we could say, in terms of spiritual life, the self is dead when you come to Jesus. He lives through you. Here's why this point is so important. Because the selfishness that is promoted in our society, and I would say promoted and accepted within the church, it turns nearly everything about the Christian faith inward to personal benefit. It's subjected to personal desires and it is surrendered to personal preferences individualism's effects on our minds and hearts cannot be adequately measured and so our default our default in life places ourselves at the center and start of everything so we wake up in the morning and the first thought is me i need coffee I'd really like to read my Bible, but do I want to do that? Our first thought is me. Most moments of the day, I would argue, and this produces a passivity in the Christian faith. So many people come, maybe even you today. You've come and you've sat in a chair and you fully expect to just be an observer today. Not a participant in the Lord's work. But it also, beyond passivity, I would say, it breeds a perpetual state of discontentment. You know why? Because you're always thinking that there is something better for me that can serve me more, that can meet my needs. If it's not this sermon, it's another sermon. If it's not this preacher, it's another preacher. If it's not this church, it's another church. And the next and the next because I want what I want. We cannot measure this kind of impact. And the only remedy for this is the gospel. It is the gospel. At the very core of the gospel, we learn that our lives are not about us. Even the Christian life is not about what we're willing to leave behind. In our our individual uh, thought patterns, we tend to elevate the people that have laid aside so much to go to the mission field and they don't get to enjoy the things that we get to enjoy. And you know what they're thinking? Why why do you care what I gave up because of my call? I didn't do it so you would exalt me. I did it because I'm a follower of Jesus. But we don't think like that. We make the Christian life, even our own discipleship, we make it purely about us. But as we read in the scriptures, as we learn from the example of Jesus, as we know to be true because of the gospel, it is not about us. It's much bigger than that. It's about what we're a part of and how God intends to use us together, church, for his purposes. The community in the Christian faith always is in view, and I would argue, Always takes priority over the individual. We can point in this text. Um, you look beyond these these verses that we just read. You see in chapter ten, Jesus sends out seventy two. We see throughout the Gospels the the twelve, the gathering of the twelve, and it's it's no coincidence that Jesus is not out there just simply making. Disciples, he's gathering a group. The community of disciples, we would say, and I'll give you some resources here the community of disciples serves a purpose for the first disciples, but also foreshadows the new covenant church community. That's what D.A. Carson says. Michael Wilkins says this he says, Jesus called individuals to discipleship. Yet responding to the call brought the disciple into a community of faith. So the commitment of a disciple is twofold then. He commits to Jesus. She commits to Jesus. And he or she commits to Jesus' followers as well. There's a reason why we have a church covenant. Is it just so we can hold people to a Christ-like standard? Well, yes, but that's not all it does. What a covenant in the the life of the church says is that I'm committing to your discipleship. It says, I want to be what I need to be for your good. And I want you to be what you need to be for my good. We edify and build one another up in the community of Christ. So we commit to Jesus, yes, but we also commit to his followers. The communal commitment surfaces in so many different ways. Uh, The familial language that Jesus uses to describe the disciples' relationships to one another. Brothers. Paul is always writing brothers, dear brothers, brotherly love. What does Jesus say? They'll know you by your love for one another. There is something unique in this relationship that we saints have, especially in the local church. So I'm arguing Today, and for six weeks, discipleship is a church task. Let's get there. Let's make it normal for us. So here's, I want to repeat something every week. And, um, well, it's basically, uh, it's a commitment that I'm making to you, and I'm asking you to make to one another, including me. So we're going to, each week, As we get into the sermon, we're going to say this together as much as you are able and willing. If it's your heart's desire to see one another grow into likeness, then you ought to be able to commit to your church family. So I'll tell you first off, this is my commitment to you. I'm committing to your discipleship because the gospel is transforming me. I'm committing to your discipleship because the gospel is... Is transforming me. So, members of Cedarview, I want to invite you to say that with me. Repeat after me. In the hearing of all these people around you, those in the back, the hearing of all those people around you, repeat after me. I'm committing to your discipleship, I'm committing to your discipleship. because the gospel is transforming me. Now, I wish Raul were up here because I next would say, now turn to your neighbor and say, but no, we're not going to do that. (laughs) I'm committing to your discipleship because the gospel is transforming me. So for six weeks, I want that to be your singular focus when you gather with the saints. If we want to see one another transformed, we must examine our own commitment to Jesus as His followers. That's what we're doing in this text today, and then we'll jump off from there over these next weeks. If you notice in the text that Jesus is clearly gaining some interest from the crowds, it seems like people are loosely following Him. There's various texts in the Scripture that show how uh, there were the people who were associated with Jesus and His followers, but they weren't truly committed. We have a case here, three cases actually of people who are at that point of uh, about to make a commitment, potentially followers of Jesus. I I like to call them would-be followers of Jesus. And I want to give you the theme for the day. Christ, what we learn from this text, Christ and his kingdom overtake our self-interest. Christ and his kingdom overtake our self-interest. I want you to keep self-interest in mind and know that it is not always super obvious or super sinful ways that our self-interest takes priority. Sometimes it's very subtle. I think we see that in the text today. I want to remind you that Jesus is a particularly gifted, obviously, in discerning people's hearts with the help of the Spirit. You recall stories, passages of scripture like the rich young ruler. He asks just the right questions, makes just the right demands to uncover the dude's heart. He encounters a Canaanite woman. He he draws faith out of her in a way that is almost like it's almost rude. He meets that father of the boy with an unclean spirit that says, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus knew what all these people needed. And I would argue today, keep this in mind, he knows what you need to hear if you want to be a follower of Jesus, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus. Would you listen to his word for you today? But there's a big difference between the way Jesus dealt with potential converts and the way the modern church deals with potential converts. Jesus highlighted the obstacles in their life. While we typically try to push the obstacles aside, we try to minimize the obstacles, we cater to the demands of the individual. We, in doing so, softened the offensiveness of the gospel, and we minimize the cost of discipleship. Oh, don't worry about your family. We'll, we'll, we'll deal with them later. Yeah, they hate Jesus, but you love him, and it's okay. We'll, we'll figure it out. Your money, oh, you'll learn, you'll learn how to give. Th- this is what we do. I want you to notice as we move into it, it tells us right there, verse 57, as they were going along the road, I want to remind you of where Jesus is headed. He has set his face toward Jerusalem. He is seeing these would-be disciples and saying, you have no idea what I've come to do. and You have no idea what you're getting yourself into by following me. So I want to be clear that you know what may be ahead for you. I want to give you three priorities, if you will. It's really one priority over three other potential priorities. Number one, from verses 57 and 58, prioritize Christ's kingdom over worldly expectations. Prioritize Christ's kingdom over worldly expectations. And a sub-point here I want you to note that intention often surrenders to unmet expectations. Right here, verse 57 someone comes along and says, I will follow you wherever you go. This guy seems resolved, he seems sincere, he seems even zealous. And if this guy showed up at church and said, I want to follow Jesus wherever he goes, you know what we say? Here's a card, fill it out, we'll schedule your baptism. We pay little attention to the costs of following Jesus. But you know, Jesus, the way that he shares the gospel, the way that he invites people to faith, is not a sales pitch. You ever notice that commercials never begin with all the side effects if they're trying to sell you a pill of some kind? Hey, here's this medication, but before we tell you what it does, here's what you may encounter. And they say it, you know, at the end of the, they said it at the end of the commercial, so you barely hear it, and they say it super fast, right? Probably because they're just obligated to. Jesus doesn't do that. He says, he says, all the bad things right up front, this is what you may encounter. These are the costs. You know, the car, car salesman, he doesn't focus on the things that have gone wrong with the car. He wants to sell you the car. He doesn't begin with how much it costs. He begins with what you need in your life, right? We'll figure out the cost later. Let me show you this feature. But here we see this man makes a bold statement. You know, saying something like this, I will follow you wherever you go. That may take you places that you don't intend to go. One pastor highlighted here, if all you have is a profession and good intentions, you won't follow Jesus very far. So this would-be follower intends to stick with Jesus, but what happens when following Jesus doesn't turn out like he thought it would? What happens when following Jesus does not turn out like you thought it would? Well, the preacher said he's the answer to all my problems. Well, yeah, but you may not like how those answers are communicated to you. You know, our intentions are steady. Our intentions of following Jesus are steady until our family thinks we're fanatical. Our intentions remain until our friends think we've changed too much. Our intentions are sturdy until following Jesus costs us our job. Our intentions are firm until we get that diagnosis we never wanted to hear. Our intentions are steadfast until the church makes a decision that we don't like. Our intentions are good until our five year plan falls apart. Parents, especially of younger ones, our intentions are unwavering until the gospel really reaches our children upending our expectations of life for them. Parents, do you really want your child running up to Jesus and saying, I will follow you wherever you go? Do you really want that? It seems that in most of our thinking, in our society Of course we want them in heaven one day, but are we willing to let them follow Jesus to the unreached people of South Asia? Are we willing to see our children give themselves to lifelong ministry among remote people groups? They may give their life for the advance of the gospel. Do you want that, parents? Our intentions are good until we consider what Jesus demands. We want them to have enough faith to be decent Christians, but not sold out ones, to go back to our 90s language. Not not enough to lay everything at the will of Jesus. You see, parents, even we don't get it. We don't get it. You know, our intentions are solid. Until a pandemic hits. Shattering our expectations. What I've seen in the lives of many, not all, but many Christians, is just a further exposing of our devotion to our own safety and self-preservation. Now, I want to be careful here. I want to be careful because... In this uh, sort of examining your heart in this matter, I don't want to come across as accusatory. But I would ask you, is, is fear exercising control over you, believer? I would ask folks at home, have you, have you considered a plan for re-engaging your Christian life? Gathering with the church again, do you have a plan? That's all I'm asking Do you have a plan? Have you considered it? I want to encourage you to plan now and make every effort to come serve your brothers and sisters. But here's the point. Whether you're in a pandemic or among a remote people group, our commission to make disciples does not change. That's why Jesus would say, whoever would save his life is going to lose it. But whoever would lose his life for my sake is going to find it. Paul says to the Corinthians, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. See, Intention often surrenders to unmet expectations. I didn't know this was coming. I didn't know this was coming. I I probably wouldn't have signed up. I'll take the good parts, but I don't want the bad. But you know what? Jesus knows what we need to hear, just like he knew what this man needed to hear. He responds and says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Foxes and birds, we get this. Places of comfort, places to return, places to call home, places of shelter and security, places that are ours. This is my hole. This is my home. This is my nest. You know what happens in our attempt, when we hear these words, in our attempt to sound really modest or pious, I know every one of us has said this at some point, you know, I don't need a lot in life. I just need... Blank. Insert it. As long as I have a good income, a roof over my head, and my basic needs met, then I'll be just fine. You know what that means? Jesus is not enough for you. I recall several years ago, it was a campaign. You know, mugs and shirts that said, Jesus plus coffee. Yeah, it's cute. Okay, it's cute. Jesus plus coffee, right? And so... The idea is that I just need my coffee in the morning and I'll take Jesus too, right? So I recall my wife ran across a sticker that said, Jesus plus nothing. And you know where we have that sticker? It's right on our coffee pot. We run out of coffee, you know what? We got Jesus. Our roof falls in, we got Jesus. If we are displaced if we are arrested for our faith, we got Jesus. If our lives are taken from us, we got Jesus. Jesus plus nothing. And we can say it all we want, but so many times, so many stages of our lives We do not believe that Jesus is really all we need. He says right here, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. This was not a statement of lodging plans for the night. It is Jesus' confession of dependence on the Father that God will supply all his needs. Furthermore, as we see in the example of Jesus and his followers, especially the apostles, Rejection is the norm for Jesus. It's the norm for his followers. We see that from the previous verses in this chapter. But here, I don't don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus right here speaks of birds and foxes. There's another place where he addresses the way the Father cares for the sparrows, right? He knows when one of them falls. He knows when the flower dies. He knows all the happenings of all of creation down to the very detail. The balance for us is clear. But when we preach the gospel, we're not preaching, come to Jesus because of all that he can do for you. Because then we say, all that he can do for you is your God. Do you see? When we preach the gospel, We say, here's what you're giving up. And when we come together as a church, we say, here is what we have in Christ. He needs to be the object of our affection, the object of our faith. This is so subtle and dangerous, I would say, in our culture, that very topic. So we show people Christ. And everything it means for the life that they've been building apart from him. But among the saints, we celebrate the Father's care. We celebrate his provision, his preservation. We celebrate the assurances of life in the kingdom. Comforts that transcends the world's idea of comfort. So that was the longest point. Don't be discouraged. Prioritize Christ's kingdom over worldly expectations secondly prioritize christ's kingdom over earthly duties verses 59 and sixty he gives the call here verse 59 follow me this call is for everyone as we see throughout the scriptures and I want to give you some points of action here subpoints here I want to say in line with what this guy's response is, first off, stop making excuses. Stop making excuses. He says, follow me, but the the guy says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. You know, it's kind of like when kids, those of you with kids, I'm sorry for all the, the child illustration and application, but that's a lot of my life. So, You know when your kids, you tell them to do something, you you say, hey, go do, go clean your room, go, you know, make your bed, whatever, take out the trash. Uh, But let me first do this, right? Let me finish this. Let me, one more, just one more, right? There's always, there's always a reason or excuse to delay obedience. Say, folk, know what this is like every day. Is it not a constant struggle to to lay aside the tasks of routine life in order to commune with Jesus in his word and prayer? I know, I know. But I really, I really, really wanted to spend time with Jesus today. But, But you didn't. Your intentions, your intentions were overtaken. This happened, that happened. You know, Jesus fell off your checklist. I kind of picture, those of you who watch NASCAR, you, you see the guy that, that blows his tire, and you got the list of the, the leaderboard, and you're watching his name just drop down, right? You know what I'm talking about. You see his name just dropping off the board. Before you know he's a lap down. That's what happens to Jesus when we don't prioritize him and his kingdom. Everything else is ready for you to give it attention. And Jesus is taking a backseat role. This is what happens to this man here. There's always another priority fighting for the top spot. You know, regarding this particular case, uh, many preachers have tried to make this really more than, than what it is. I'm sure you've heard, well, he just wants his inheritance, right? Right? He just wants the the money. He wants the security. He's waiting for his dad to die. His dad may not even be dead. We've heard that before. He wants to get the inheritance. I don't think that's the case here. I think he is simply saying, I have an earthly duty to fulfill Jesus. Can I go fulfill it first? But why do we want it to be about inheritance or money or security? Why do we want that? Because... If we can make it about that, then we can let ourselves off the hook. If we can make this guy money-hungry, then we can say, well, I'm not money-hungry. And then it's not about us anymore. We get to avoid that passage of Scripture. We get to avoid that confrontation. We get to avoid dealing with our lack of devotion to Jesus. It's like lighting a picture. In the day of selfies... How many of y'all, young folks, I'm looking at the back row especially here. How many of young folks, you, you got in the, in the room and you turned the selfie camera on and you're like, oh, I got to get the light just this way, right? The light looks so good coming from this angle. We want that light to be cast on us in the way. Sorry for calling y'all out. I do it too. We all do it. You got on Instagram this week and did it. This is what we do. We want the best light on us. So if we can cast the light on this man and say, He's a certain way that I'm not, then we can avoid a lot about this passage. But this is about duty. He has an earthly duty, an honorable duty. He has an obligation to his parents. That's honorable, right? It's his duty as a child to his to lay his father to rest. And In Hebrew culture, way more than ours, this is so important to them. So for Jesus to say, let the dead bury their own dead, is to say, I am more important than the greatest earthly devotion or duty that you have. Really, what he's saying to the man has to do with spiritual deadness. There's two further instructions here. Stop making excuses. We got that one. The second one is abandon spiritual deadness. Dead is used twice here in this first, but it means different things. Jesus distinguishes spiritual death from physical death. It's a distinction taught clearly by Paul in Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Spiritually dead, cannot do anything. Dead, lifeless dead. He says, like the rest of mankind. But in, in saying this, let the dead bury their own dead. Is, is Jesus like disrespecting the dead? It may seem that way. What he's clearly communicating, no matter how you land on that, he's clearly teaching us That the cares of this world, the duties of your job, your relationships, your marriage, your family, whatever it is, those duties are not near as important as these kingdom concerns. In fact, by comparison, they are nothing. He responds to the man here, he says, but you go proclaim the kingdom. So, stop making excuses. Abandon spiritual deadness, and then go proclaim the kingdom. The kingdom is more important than these earthly concerns. That's all we'll say on that one. So, prioritize Christ's kingdom over worldly expectations. Prioritize Christ's kingdom over earthly duties. And then thirdly, prioritize Christ's kingdom over former life. This was a tough one to word. I'm not sure if that even captures what I intend or what I think the passage intends. We have a third man here, verses 61, 62. He says, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So it's very possible that After hearing the conversation of the previous two, maybe he's thinking that he's better off than the other guys. Well, I don't have family duties. And I understand I may not not be able to uh, cling to any particular comfort or measure of security in this world. He just wants to say bye to mom and dad, right? Let me go say bye to mom and dad. What he's got is a confession, an honorable confession. I will follow you. He even says, Lord, acknowledging the lordship of Jesus. He was confessing and submitting to Jesus as Lord. And we would think, well, he's got something going for him. But then he says, but let me first, very much like the previous guy. Similar to that would-be follower, he delays. Yet this delay is far less serious. Just let me go say bye to my family. You know, what's funny is that he could even make a biblical case for being able to go say farewell to his family. That's what Elisha did. You may recall Elijah was calling Elisha at the council of the Lord. And you know what Elisha said? Let me first go say farewell to my mom and dad, and then I will follow you. This guy could have said, Well, Elisha did it, so let me go kiss my mother and father like he did. The problem, though, is not his love for his parents or his desire to say goodbye. Rather, Jesus is discerning a potential problem with his discipleship from the get-go. He's hanging on to something. He's hanging on to former life. There's a lot of ways that you could apply this in your struggle as a Christian or your life prior to Christ. There are things that maybe as you are sort of plowing with Jesus that you want to fix your eyes on those things. It's family. It's a way of life. It's an it's a earthly sort of pleasure that you enjoyed, maybe. Jesus says, you put your hand to the plow and look back, you're not fit for the kingdom. That fit is not, uh, that's like useful. Useful. It seems that this would-be follower was torn in his devotion. There's the life that I have, the life that I know, and then there's the life with Jesus, where the path is is unknown. It's totally up to him. If I devote myself to him, then I'm letting go of what used to be. Stein explains here that this looking back is gazing. We're not talking about a glance here, we're talking about gazing. Gazing. As a child, one of my uh, more embarrassing moments, I've told some of y'all this before. I remember, I think I was pulling somebody on a wagon, running hard. I was probably six, seven years old. Running hard, pulling somebody on a wagon. And I look back, I'm trying to make sure that they're okay, they're staying upright and all that. You know what I do? I turn around, run smack into a tree. Huge knot on my head. But you know what? I was more focused on what was behind me than what was ahead of me. Anybody, knows who, anybody who knows the, the illustration here of plowing, you don't have to be a farmer to understand if you want to plow in a straight line, you can't be looking somewhere else. You've got to be focused on the task at hand. And for the sake of our application, our focus, our devotion, our attention, our gaze ought to be on Jesus. It has to be. If we're his follower. I think of Lot's wife. She looked back. She longed for what was. She was not fit. Repentance in these cases must be real. Bearing fruit. Commitment must be settled. And it seems for this man, he wasn't quite settled. Maybe he hadn't let go of former life. Now, we don't know their decisions in the long run. It seems that these loose followers of Jesus came to this encounter with him, and it's very likely that they decided the cost was too great. It seems that they were all driven by self-interest, that they were driven by personal matters, even honorable personal matters. But I want to turn back as we make some closing application promise I'm almost done. I'm going to turn back Luke 9 verses 23 through 25. I want to remind you what Jesus has already said to them. Verse 23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. but Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? With that thought in mind, I want to make some, uh, just a few brief applications. They're going up. I want to explain the so what. When I was ministering to students, we did this every week. Every week I would teach, and at the conclusion, we would have a so what. So we're going to do that every one of the next six weeks in order to give you some handles for some application, maybe some thoughts to jump off from to start dealing with this text and Jesus' call for you in your own life. So I would ask you these questions. Have you reckoned with unmet expectations? It's possible that you're holding a grudge against Jesus because of what it has cost you to follow him. Have you reckoned with unmet expectations? Also, what duties crowd discipleship out of top priority? What duties? We're not talking about sin. We're talking about just normal things that remove Jesus from his first place. What duties crowd discipleship out of top priority? Thirdly, with the third point, is something from your past hindering your discipleship, your following Jesus? Something from your past. I would encourage you today... Deal with that. Let go of it. As we conclude, I want to remind you that this is not about being the best follower of Jesus you can be or the best version of yourself or even your own growth. This is about how God has placed you around others as an instrument and a recipient of discipleship. Gathering together, fulfilling the one another's holding each other accountable, truly, I would say, loving each other, Christ and his kingdom overtake our self-interest. And if you repeat it after me earlier, then that commitment, if you're committing to one another's discipleship, then today let the gospel transform you. Let the gospel transform you. Jesus was on the road to Jerusalem. The Bible says he set his face like a flint to Jerusalem. He was headed to the cross. On the way, he's inviting these followers to join him, showing them what it may cost them, showing us what it may cost us. But you know what? his road to Jerusalem, setting his face to Jerusalem. Do you know why he did that? Because he knows you're going to struggle being a disciple of Jesus. You're going to struggle with looking back. You're going to struggle with earthly duties. You're going to struggle with a lot of things. And in every way that you have struggled, in every way that you have failed, he set his face to Jerusalem Being perfect in every way to take your punishment, to be the perfect worshiper of God, to be perfectly imaging God for you, to fulfill all the law that you can't fulfill. Jesus came not to just make high demands on being his followers, but to actually do the work at the cross that we could not do, which is pay for our sin and obtain righteousness before God. This is what he did. So the gospel must transform you today and every day if you want to be a follower of Jesus. Believe on him. Trust in him for all things. He truly is all you need. You may respond this morning, giving your life to Jesus, surrendering to him in faith, repenting of sin, having counted the costs. Maybe believers, you haven't thought about the cost because, frankly, your your life, maybe you haven't given up much to follow Jesus. Can you reckon with that today as we respond? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We do thank you for your word. We thank you for the high calling that is ours in Christ Jesus. And just like Paul, we leave behind what...